0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. Every season we like to highlight the people that work to make our experience in the Bighorn community the model for excellence that we enjoy whether it be for a long weekend or the entire year. As we have highlighted the tremendous stories of our members we also want to share stories about our staff that also has twists and turns in their lives and get to know them in a more personal way. We are all part of this wonderful community. Today's program is once again brought to you with the support of Leeds & Son, Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 75 years. They continue to set the standard for service and personal attention as the premier jeweler in the desert and Back Nine Greens, who creates works of art with the quality and design staff that sets them apart from their competition. Golf art starts with Back Nine Greens. This is Marty Lockman, and today's guest is a person who works behind the scenes as the Chief Financial Officer of the Bighorn Golf Club. Today we will get to know more about the person, Joe Curtis has been in his position since January 1992. But his story starts in Ventura, California. Joe, welcome, and take us on your journey.
1: Yes, I'm a product of a very, very good childhood by two very, very good parents. My parents are Albert and Martha Curtis. They were married till death. My dad... My dad was, well, when he retired, he was, his title was fire chief. That really isn't what the duties were. He worked at Naval Air Air Station Point Magoo. His responsibilities was aircraft, fire, and rescue. So he trained and ran a crew that would patrol the runways day and night for the Navy. He comes from very humble beginnings in Warren, Ohio, World War II, you know, took him away at 17. And that's where he actually started the aircraft fire and rescue was during World War II. He was on the battleship uh, Bella Wood. That was his job. And I still have his red fire cap that he wore during World War II. And that's what you did on on uh, aircraft carriers. Everybody wore a cap that was on the fight, flight deck. So they knew what the heck you did. Red was fire and rescue. Anyway, he started there and then continued with it after the war and stayed with it till he retired. I'm so proud of my father. He never talked about the rescues. He just did his job. When he passed away at his funeral, I passed the microphone along. Numerous pilots stood up, said, I'm here today because of Chief Curtis and his crew who entered, and they went into this story, entering a burning aircraft or aircraft wreck of some sort, either on the runway or off the runway, sometimes on a hillside, rescued the crew. So, special place in heaven for that man.
0: Well, you also, Joe, we talk about the great generation um, from that period of time. They were humble about mm-hmm. it. They just thought this was the way people did yeah. things. It yeah. wasn't uh, heroic. It was, as you said, their job and didn't even need to talk about it sometimes because it probably was a little painful to relive some of those circumstances. But also, that's just who they were. They didn't feel like special people. But obviously, to you and to the people that came in contact with your dad, it was a very special person. Yes.
1: And my mother, Martha, um, she worked at Point Magoo as well. She was in the division, they just referred to it as targets. And so I guess naval you know, uh, aircraft had to have something to blow up or shoot a missile at or something like that. And so my mom worked in the department that arranged for all that type of uh, simulated warfare, I'd call it. So yeah, she worked there till she retired as well. Pretty basic beginnings. Lived in one house the whole time. Very small little house, but it was perfectly placed. My high school was at the end of my block. My grade school was maybe a third of a mile away, my middle school the same, and, and so forth and so on. So we grew up in a very nice community of Ventura, California. Growing up in my youth, I discovered that really not until high school, I just started growing. Probably middle school started growing. But when I got to high school, I told my dad, I said, I think I want to try this football thing. I gave it a try. And I would never played before. I was probably a sophomore in high school. Figured out pretty quick that I could play this thing. Did well in high school with sports in the football, wound up getting complete full ride scholarship to University of Oklahoma as an offensive lineman. That started a whole nother journey. Cause I didn't know anybody in the entire state, but you know, it was the number one team in the premier in the, team in the country at the time. So I thought I'd take my skills there. I want to backtrack a little bit because of why I probably got started in my financial degree in accounting why I probably chose that route is I'm going to go back to my father. My father didn't finish high school until probably his mid to late thirties, just through a GED because World War II took him at 17 and never finished high school. But my dad was very simple in his discipline. I'll talk about it because maybe that's what made me go into the financial world. But my dad kept... A, I call it an accordion file, and it's pleated sides. You open it up, had little dividers in there. Well, Dad, on every divider, he put on there clothing, next divider, dining out, next divider, groceries, next divider, vacation, on and on and on. He had, he had these dividers. So he would get my mom's paycheck, his paycheck, cash it, put X amount in the savings account at a bank, little walking around money in mom's purse, Dad's wallet. But then what was left over, he took and divided cash in those little dividers. His simple way of budgeting and never having a budget problem. So for an example, when we'd go on vacation, he'd go to that section of the recording file and pull out the cash. He never used a credit card. Never, 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 never. He'd take that cash and say, okay, we're going on vacation. About the time that cash ran out, guess what happened? Dad would say, vacation's over. We go home. You know, it's just, it's just that simple. And that's how he ran his life in a very strict, disciplined, budgeted way. And, you know, he probably started doing that after he finally got a high school degree. So anyways, I'm deciding on, you know, fast forwarding back to college again, what kind of degree I'm going to go, go with. And I went, well, you know, when I did my SATs, I was a 95, 97 percentile in mathematics and, and probably a 40 percent in verbal, you know, so, okay, well, I'm, Getting a degree in English probably wouldn't, or composition or anything like that probably wouldn't be the greatest. But so I'll stick with uh, talking with counselors as well. You know, everybody always needs a good accountant. And I went, okay, I'll give accounting degree a shot. And so that's what I graduated with from the University of Oklahoma. Played football, which the balance between football and, and academics was always a challenge. I was never one of those uh, players whereby the uh, administration had to worry about el- meeting eligibility requirements and stuff like that. So had a wonderful experience at the University of Oklahoma and graduated with a degree, and later on I became a CPA. I'm also what's called a CMA, which is a certified management accountant as well as an international management accountant as well. So I just kind of focused after I graduated college on getting some some degrees out of the way.
0: Let me just go back a little bit because – You're humble, not unlike your dad, I think. First of all, what kind of jobs did you do growing up? Because your father taught you a great work ethic. He also taught you the value of a dollar. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm sure he didn't articulate that. You just saw it, the process that he went through to do that. What kind of jobs did you do as you were a kid growing up?
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'll, I'll start with like uh, summer jobs, uh, high school and college. I was pretty well connected with the Ventura Parks and Recreation. And they had programs during the summer where they, where they would um, have a park supervisor at a playground or something like that. And you would do all kinds of things. Entertain kids would come down there for the day. So I, I did that. But then at night, I would work the softball leagues. Either scorekeeping, just running the park, making sure the games are getting organized and going for the leagues that would play at night. I didn't do umpiring, but one funny thing is I was good friends with the guy who ran it, the Parks and Recreation. I can remember one night I was scorekeeping. He's sitting next to me and it was the C Leagues. Now, the C Leagues are not your best softball players. They're, they're just out there to drink beer and yell and try to hit a ball. And it's just awful, awful softball. Anyway, there was a call at the plate. Umpire made a call. I can't even recall if it was a right call or wrong call, but both benches are coming out. The supervisor I worked for, he says, I better get out there and see if we can put this down. But I can remember his words to me. He says, Joe, I want you to come with me. I don't want you to do anything but just stand next to me. So I think, yes, I think I think right about then I knew I'd be you know like a bodyguard at some point in time but uh yeah he just wanted me to stand next to him so nobody took a swing at him so i did things like that later on as i was getting towards the finish line at the university of oklahoma uh one of our alumni was the ceo of mattel toy corporation so for two summers i'd come home i'd go to work at the mattel toy headquarters in uh around torrance or where it was down just past the airport, LAX. So I drive there every day to um, Mattel Toys uh, corporate headquarters because he put me to work in their accounting office, you know, just as an intern. Nothing too significant, but it was giving me a good idea of, you know, a financial enterprise and and how it works. So I did that for a couple of
0: summers and um, learned really quite a bit. And again, those early jobs for most of us, it was somewhat out of necessity Mm -hmm. because if you wanted something, you wanted Mm -hmm. to go out or you wanted to have some disposable income, if you will, you had to have the job and you had to make that because that couldn't come from the family. They were on a, as you've already pointed out, that accordion file. There wasn't a place there for Joe going to the movies. There wasn't a file in there for Joe.
1: Okay? There wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) So he skipped right past that and would fund everything else. But, you know, if I wanted gas in the car or if I wanted the car, you know, I
0: had to earn it and pay for it. Right. And And again, then, too, you're on a full ride at Oklahoma. And as you have already mentioned— This is one of the premier programs in the country, uh, still to this day, but even more so back then. Uh, Tell me what that experience is like, because um, you're—I would think—you're big man on campus. Maybe not the quarterback, but you're certainly part of this team that does very, very well. What was that experience like?
1: Before I get into that, I'll, I'll just mention that my dad and mom probably partied for the first two years I was there because dad had saved money for college for Joe. And then it turned out, not only did he not have to pay for college, he didn't have to feed me any longer. So it was a twofer. And so he partied forever because it saved him a ton of money. So anyways, I go to school. Again, maybe that's why uh, i got into the financial world is you know a CFO is like you said earlier is kind of behind the scenes guy you know so is an offensive lineman so I've talked about my dad's budgeting acumen now the offensive lineman offensive lineman never gets their name in the paper okay but if they screw something up trust me you hear about it it's that quarterback that gets the name in the paper of running through the line and and scoring a touchdown well they never talk about you know who made that opening in that line, that kind of thing. And uh, at any rate, so again, I think another thing that groomed me well for the financial career is being an offensive lineman, okay? Because my job throughout time has been make that other guy look good, make that other guy look like a million bucks, make that organization prosperous, but you don't get your name in the paper. But anyways, my experience at the University of Oklahoma, wonderful, wonderful time, but a lot, a lot of work. I played in every game. I uh, am blessed by that. A lot of kids can't say that. Yes, I was injured, bad. I uh, one experience is you know my senior year, and during scrimmage, we had just opened camp in August. I got a terrible knee injury. I wouldn't come out of the scrimmage. I tried to play with it. Finally, coaches had to come in and grab me and say, they, "We saw the injury. You, you can't do this. You know, get to the locker room and so forth." And, our orthopedic surgeon would always be at practice. He took a look at it and just shook his head and said, you know, when he says, you know, come into my office on Monday and bring your toothbrush, that means you're not going back to class. That means you're going across the street from his office and you're having surgery. Well, I can remember Barry Switzer was my coach. He's standing there in the in the training room along with my offensive line coach, and they both said, Joe, listen, you know, I know what Doc said, but, you know, we got to see if we can get you – put back together, maybe take a couple weeks off, heal up, put it in the miracle pool and the training room and everything and see what you can do, but you got to play this year. And I go, okay, well, I'll give it a try, I'll give it a try. So I had to watch practice for two weeks and just was killing me. My dad was a lifelong Ohio State fan, lived and died Ohio State. He did not talk to me ahead of the game. We went in there. I played some, but sparingly. Thankfully, you know, in a position I didn't really have any experience at, and I'm taped up like a mummy. And I was against a Woody Hayes-coached Ohio State. Nineteen. This is seventy-seven. I want to say we wound up beating them that day with twenty seconds left on the clock with a forty-three-yard field goal. We were down like twenty-four to. 26 some goofy score like this we wound up winning by a point maybe two points i can't remember so anyways that the conclusion at that of that game we got off the field in a hurry uh because the place is pretty much coming apart and um i can remember we went to the locker room uh coach switzer said to the team nobody's taking a shower get out of your uniform put your street clothes on the charter jets are ready to go we're getting out of here so we didn't shower, we didn't do anything. There was no time for reporters to interview anybody. They just, we just got the heck out of town. We went back to, flew back to Norman, and um, we get to the school. We pull into the parking lot or dormitory. We couldn't exit. Well, I'm sorry, I'll, I'm gonna back up to the airport. We landed in Oklahoma City. We couldn't go to the terminal. There was tens of thousands of people. You gotta remember in those days you had one maybe two college games televised a week. You had the Jim Fleming uh, game of the college football game of the week. That's about what you had. And so for Oklahoma to be on that that game was a big thrill for the for the state. Well, we couldn't go through the through the uh, terminal, so we had to lead the airplane on the on the runway or the taxiway and get into our, our buses there, which we did. Went down to Norman, went to our parking lot. We couldn't get out of buses. There was probably five, seven thousand kids, just students everywhere. So we finally made our way out of the buses to our dormitory, finally were able to take a shower, then go out for the evening. <laughs> so
0: this had to be a heady experience, too. Oh yeah. I mean, you even though you had a great program, you had never yeah. experienced anything like this before. No. And on
1: top of all that, because we beat Woody Hayes. Because we beat Ohio
0: State, my father, again, didn't talk to me for about three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't see him right after the game. What was your first conversation with him once he did decide to talk to you?
1: We probably read about it first because I had, like, my hometown newspaper would call and say, tell me about this experience, and pretty much what I just described uh, now. And so we probably read about it in the sports section, you know, before even he would talk to me, so... I can remember we, we finally got together and says, Okay, you got your big win. Now what are you gonna do next week? You know. So at any rate that's just how it turned out and and but throughout football at Oklahoma and balancing that with academics is it was difficult because a, a, a typical a typical day during the season would be you get up, you go to class, um, you have position meetings probably about two o'clock in the afternoon and from position meetings you get dressed you're you're on the field you're on the field till about six six thirty then you go have dinner then you have some time for studying but at probably nine you watched films of practice you got back together in your position meetings with your offensive line coach in my case and He'd go through the films of practice and how boring is that? And you're just going, well, you know, I got to still hit the books tonight. So that would be a typical Monday through Thursday, travel on Friday, play a game on Saturday. But here's a little known fact, and this is how it was in, in division one football in those days. You practiced on Sunday after a game. Wow. It wasn't contact, but still it was a, a dedication of time, getting back in you know, in, in uniform, back out on the field, running through things, this, that and the other thing. And so it's it's difficult to to work in your your studying. And so that would be that would be September through, you know, we your bowl game in some sometimes in New Year's Day. I played in the Fiesta Bowl, I played in the Orange Bowl. I didn't have time to go home you know, for Christmas or Thanksgiving or something like that. They'd give us some days off, but I, I couldn't fly all the way back to California and then get back in time to catch a bus to go to Miami or something. Um, so I, I met some very good friends of mine, lifelong friends. I went home with them. And I can remember going home for Christmas. And they just took me in like another, one of their kids. I even had Christmas gifts. And, um... You know, we, we you know, have remained lifelong friends. We're in each other's weddings and everything. And uh, so I have developed some lifelong friends from the program. Um, but when I came around and graduated a senior, I was done with football. I really wanted to just go out and work for a living. I'd studied. Um, you know, I, I needed some time after I, I was my eligibility of football concluded. So I went to a fifth year of college. Because you can imagine with the outline, the daily schedule, you know, it took a little longer to pass all those classes. And so I was, I was just done. I just, I didn't want to be beat up anymore. You know, I felt injured and I was just done with football. And I wanted to get into work. So I was very fortunate that in those days, I was hired before I graduated for my first job. My first job was with a company called Landmark Land Company. It was my first introduction into resorts, golf, real estate development, residential, commercial, the the whole thing. And so they hired me because they saw us from California. So I was interviewing with the CFO. They were based in Oklahoma City at the time. And He says, we need an assistant controller out in this Palm Springs area. I went, okay, I don't know where it is. I've never been there. I'll check it out. So they sent, they flew me out to take a look at it and... What the job was, was assistant controller for what is now called La Quinta Resort. It was called La Quinta Hotel at the time. And the Landmark Land Company had bought it basically at a sheriff's auction, was developing the surrounding real estate into what is the mountains course they have over there, was their first golf course. So it was under construction when I first started. So I took the job, moved out there. I took my last final exam at University of Oklahoma. My car was packed in the parking lot. I went right from the classroom to my car and drove to California. I stayed at my parents' house for a couple of weeks until my job started, start date, and I came out to Palm Desert, looked for an apartment, didn't have any money for an apartment, so the company had to give me a little bit of an advance and you know, I came out with forty dollars in my pocket. That's all I had. So I had to get going. So I got started in the real estate development at that point in time and I moved around and grew with them. I went from La Quinta Hotel Development to, and this is probably seventy-eight, seventy-nine. I went to be the controller of Carmel Valley Ranch. I was there for, I don't know, maybe three years. Landmark really started growing and we started acquiring golf communities. We, we acquired Mission Hills, and so they needed somebody there to run it. So I, I left Carmel Valley Ranch, went to Mission Hills, Mission Hills. I was controller there for a couple of years. And then we started acquiring the PGA West land. And so we centralized our accounting and development operations. So I moved over from Mission Hills over to uh, our offices in the Quinta Cove, and we started developing that whole world. And I think everybody's probably most familiar with that. And it just kept growing, growing, growing. One time, uh, they decided to centralize all of our accounting operations, financial operations, at a savings and loan we had acquired in New Orleans. So off to New Orleans I go, and so I'm in an eight-story building just a block off of Bourbon Street. My job was changed to what really became very, very interesting, which was more of the acquisition and due diligence of properties. So I was part of the team that would go out to, now I'll just use this example, kiwa Island nineteen eighty six, I wanna say, maybe, that uh, they thought that might be a good acquisition. So I'd go out there with our our legal group, financial group would be me, pretty much. The CFO would come out occasionally, then the CEO of the company'd be there and we just would go and go through the books and look at the entitlements and look at everything and decide on, you know, is this something that works for us and can we get it for the right price and blah, blah, blah. And we do all that. So we, we pulled the trigger on Kiowa Island. And then the other part of my job was to, was to get them online with all of our financial reporting, with all of our bill paying, with everything, you know, within our system. So I had to train a lot of people, get a lot of things going, uh, make sure the development people were, you know, getting their bills paid, contracts, everything, and, and getting them just up and running. And then I would moved to the next project, which may have been Palm Beach Polo and Country Club. That's another big one. But that was part, that was my job, was that person. So I was on the road the whole time, but it worked out for me personally. I didn't have kids and so forth, so I couldn't make time to do that. So I was with Landmark Land Company for 13 years. I, re- I left there as a vice president at the time. And then I went to work for Westinghouse Communities, which gave me the responsibility initially uh, in the infancy of, of Bighorn Golf Club plus a role in the properties that were owned up in the Napa area, and Half Moon Bay, and Tucson. So I kind of had kind of a milk run, so to speak, of properties. But they didn't. it wasn't a big drain of my time. These other properties were probably wanted to divest more than anything else of those, of those other areas. And so I came to work for Westinghouse, probably a year, two years after that, Westinghouse decides to divest of Westinghouse communities. Bighorn was not all that financially successful at that time. And it's probably one of the reasons why they want to divest of these properties this is it's a bad time for the economy. They're tired of his pumping money into it. So what what a lot of people don't know is there was actually an investment group that owned Bighorn before Mr. Hubbard. So it went Westinghouse, investment group, and then Mr. Hubbard's group. The investment group that bought it from Westinghouse Communities, Bighorn. I'll stick with it for right now. They wanted to get rid of it as quick as they got it, and hopefully make a few bucks. They did not come at it with the right attitude. You know, Carl Carnelli and myself—you know—we were just doing everything we do day to day to just keep the place reasonably operating to the expectation of our members at that time. We didn't have many many members, thankfully, only about sixty, I'd say. That was a challenge because we were working with this investment group that just didn't want to put any money in it, and it was hard. And so. When they wanted to divest of it, then that was probably the best thing imaginable for Bighorn. And Mr. Hubbard's timing was spot on. He came in, he bought it at a very good price. They wanted to get rid of it. He had a vision and he knew what members expect. And we started there. The real estate economy came around. I mean, before that, we sold maybe one home site in a year and maybe just a couple of memberships. Mr. Hubbard came along and knew how to, how to run it from the from the right perspective.
0: What was your first impression of R.D. Hubbard when you first met him?
1: Well, um, I could tell that, you know, I'm going to have to prove myself and that I knew that um, he's one of those kind of guys. Now, look, I, I grew up in the football arena. You know, that's what this guy was. You know, he's the, he's the coach. He's the head coach. You know, Barry Switzer, you know, you didn't hear much from him. You know, when I played for him, he was up in his tower. Well, Mr. Hubbard was kind of in his tower, but he knew how, from the member perspective, what expectations were, and that was his goal. I knew that he's the kind of person that, well, let's see, if he hasn't fired me, he must like me. This is kind of how it is. So I didn't look for any kind of pat on the back for Mr. Hubbard, because it ain't going to happen. But if you're still around, consider yourself praised. So we we became successful at the mountainside. We always had this piece of land on the canyon side, but you know, all around it was owned by Safeco Properties, and we always been working with them trying to figure out a way how to make that work. So we started developing some good cash flow from the from the mountainside. The investors were doing well, happy. So Mr. Hubbard came to me one day says says Joe, I think I've got an idea as to how we can make this thing work with Safeco. So I want you to put together the uh, prospectus, so to speak, for our members. And he outlined what he had envisioned. This is just Mr. Hubbard sitting across the desk from me. He, he, he didn't have a piece of paper in front of me. He just went off of his memory just speaking out loud. And so I'm taking notes, trying to keep up with him, trying to understand, okay, 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 okay. Now I got to put this together into a financial plan. Show these people what kind of returns they would expect. I go, okay, I think I got some ideas. So I'd put together several drafts. Mr. Herbert would come to my office and go, no, 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 Joe. And I said, "What well, I'm talking about here, now. You're this is the deal. And we're going to do this and so forth. And uh, so about three or four revisions, he says, okay. This looks pretty much what I want to do. So um, he says to me, he goes, Joe, um, Friday, Hollywood Park boardroom. Bring the reports, be there. All the investors will be there. I went, I kind of had envisioned that Mr. Hubbard was going to present this thing. Now I know that I am. I went, okay, no problem. And um, so I get all my copies, everything put together, and Friday rolls around. I jump in my little car. I scream out to Hollywood Park. Never been there before. And I find Mr. Hubbard's office. He's, he's in there. says, okay, Joe, I think people are here. So let's go to the boardroom, and we walked down the boardroom, and it's much like where we're sitting today. Most of the investors are there. Some didn't make it. This was like during the summer sometime. I sat there next to Mr. Hubbard, again, feeling like the bodyguard at the C-League softball. I have a stack of reports in front of me. We got into that meeting. It just became, which I was relieved by, is, is my nervousness went away because these guys were, for the first 30 minutes, were just telling jokes, goofing around, being like, you know, you're back in a dorm room or something, you know, with these guys. Then finally Hubbard says, okay, let's do some business here, Joe, pack up, Pass out your reports. So I pass out the reports and I thought Mr. Hubbard was going to walk them through it and explain to what the what the uh, transaction amounted to and how it worked and what you can expect, what we need from you and what you can expect to get out. No, Mr. Hubbard says, okay, Joe, walk them through it. I went, okay, all right, I'll be happy too, boss. I probably, it took me after 30 minutes of joke telling and good old boy type discussion, it took me probably less than five minutes to walk them through it. And then they just set their report aside and said, okay, I'm in how much you want. And we walked out of that boardroom with all the money we needed to, to um, transact with the acquisition of the Canyons property with with Safeco Properties. So that was a big day, a big day. And I left out there, jumped in my little car and went, wow. These guys, they just didn't take much time.
0: I mean, obviously, your presentation certainly helped. But also, they had a belief in R.D. Hubbard. Yes. And not that they would have done anything, but certainly after the way that you laid it out, and so my question to you is: Was there, as you drove back, certainly a sense of satisfaction, but also a sense of relief that, oh, yeah. <laughs> that this went pretty Complete well? Complete relief. Yeah.
1: And yes, from a, from the standpoint of personal satisfaction, I went. Gosh, I was part of something that's really important. And that is, you know,
0: that satisfaction continues to this day. Yeah. Well, he was, and you saw it right at the start, and and you give some insights to a, a part of this, the history of this club that people not only might not know about, but now they they see how this all came together and what we have today, but he was a visionary, yes. he was a good businessman, he was one heck of a salesman, <laughs> uh, but he was all these things, and um But again, he said to me in a podcast that we did with him, he needed to surround himself with people that could do things that he wasn't necessarily proficient in. He knew enough about it to ask the right questions. He knew about it enough to say, well, this isn't what I want. But he surrounded himself with People that could do the things that he needed to have done to get the end result. Would that be
1: a fair assessment? Completely. Yeah. It's just organizing a team. Again, he's the head coach. So, uh, yeah. And really, after that day, after we pulled together our funding, so to speak, that's where the work began. The economy was right. We sold home sites that paid for club amenities. It's just the, the cash flow appeared because people believed in... The vision and what what Mr. Hubbard had created, cash flow appeared. Yes, we had to go out and get some some public financing for a while, and very much helped out in being able to do the roadways and public quote public improvements. Uh, but it was a pretty good plan, and, and but you know there's a lot of good people. Carl Carnali, Binet, okay. Carl, look, I, I did I, I worked on getting the, the the funding. Carl took that funding, and then with Mr. Hubbard you know, created a gem. Um, He's very good at that.
0: But again, it goes back to your dad and the lessons that he taught you at the very start. And that's the common thread that normally goes through uh, these podcasts is both dad and mom gave you values. They gave you base from which to grow on. The team aspect of sports is also a a big plus in this whole situation because you're now, again, a part of a team and you're the guy that's doing the blocking and everything so that the quarterback or the coach can go ahead and and have this vision Mm -hmm. that they played. These things don't happen by accident. There's a work ethic. There's a value system that that gets you to where you are even at that point. It's today, 30
1: years or so. I know a lot of the membership, but there's a lot of members who just say, who's that? Paul guy. What does he do? He's here every day. You know, they, they don't know my name. They don't know what I do, but that's the offensive lineman. That's the, the financial guy. And I'm good with that. I'm totally good with that. Um, because I'm, I wasn't raised to be that, that person with the name in the paper or to get the pat on the back. I, I get it just by knowing you know, why I come to work to this day.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's, Joe, that's not how to think, but I know that that's why I think these podcasts are important, um, because it is an oral history of this club, but it also, especially from people in your position and other positions around, whether it be Tony or Carl or whoever who have done these podcasts, it gives our membership a greater understanding about how this happened and who you are to a certain degree, because this is, we talk about there's a, and you've been involved in these, there's a lot of developments, but this is a community. <laughs> and the staff is a great part of that community here. Yes. There's longevity as far as um, people who have been with it, like you, for such a long time. It, there's we don't differentiate between staff and members uh, a lot as far as the culture goes we share these common goals correct correct and and that's why i'm still here the that's probably the
1: number one reason why i'm still here today is i really do come to work that you know i'm i'm privileged to be working with the people i get to work with in, in the staff world there's some people here that are very, very powerful to me. And that's why I come to work. Also the membership and the residents. I've created some friendships with many of them. They tease me horribly and I love it. I tease them right back. And, um, and there's some that we've lost, you know, like a Mike Federley.
0: Well, again, these are people that are part of the fabric. We didn't get here by accident. There was a lot of people. Yeah. That made this happen. Mike was one of them, Mr. Gagan, RD, Jim Colbert, and all of these people that yes. were here at the start and continued to, in some cases, thank goodness, continue to be part of our club. In the last couple of years, we've lost some real giants. Yes. For sure. Definitely. Let me ask you, Joe, to a couple of things. Who are the people, some of them will be obvious, but who are the people that have the greatest influence on your life? Well,
1: I think you already can tell. It's it's my dad and my mom. I don't want to forget about her. And now my mom, you know, she was uh, the kindest, kindest, kindest lady. Give her shirt off her back. So she's a big influence on me. She was a bit of a handful at times because she'd be stubborn because she's Scottish. So I can remember my mom. When she retired, you know, she found community things, and that's my parents both did. They get involved in the community just volunteering their time and so forth. And One of mom's things she did as part of her membership with the Lions Club is she would organize beach cleanup in Ventura with high school kids, like on a Saturday morning, Sunday morning, something like that, and so she'd go to the high schools and recruit kids to come and do beach cleanup. I can remember her calling me one day, says, well, we did beach cleanup today. Not everybody showed up I th- was counting on, but, you know, we, we got it done. And I said, well, well, Mom, what what time was Beach Cleanup on a Saturday? Well, I told him to be there at 7. Oh, you know, Mom, you're not going to get a whole lot of attention from high schoolers at 7 o'clock in the morning. I'm sorry, Mom. it's might have been a while since you've had a high schooler in your house, but that's just not going to happen. She says, but I promised them donuts. <laughs> <laughs> said, well, mom, you we can keep promising. Don't, it's not going to happen. So at any rate, that was my mom. Big influence on me. And um, I hope to someday be like them when I retire and give back because that's what they did. Every day they did all kinds of things. Um, big influence to me. Big influence to me would be um, like my offensive line coach at University of Oklahoma. He taught you more than just who to block, how to block, blah, 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 how to run the play, so forth. He'd stop. And I can remember every year, particularly when we had incoming freshmen, he would give the same speech because he had a poster on the wall in our meeting room, poster read. And it had a picture of somebody who looked like they are a little bit down on their luck. And the poster read, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So he started every season with the incoming freshman giving the same speech about you eat what you kill, you get out there and you work hard and good things happen. That was his point. And he went through life's life's discussions and, and then he'd get to football. Sometimes the freshmen got it, sometimes they didn't. So there was another, another person who um, started laying the groundwork and then also, laid a lot of fear in me. Just going, wow! Well, I got to get a job. How, you know, am I going to get a job when I graduate? Because I don't want to be that guy in that poster. He'd also give the speech that he didn't believe in unemployment. Did not believe in unemployment. He says, I don't care who you are. There's a job out out there. You might be two or three jobs you'd have to have, but you'll feed your family. I don't believe in unemployment. He'd give that speech. So he's quite opinionated, and and you learned by it, and. I took those skills with me. Then getting involved in business, I worked for a guy that was taught me a lot of good things, mostly mostly learning the skill set, financial skill set. I needed that. I learned quite a bit. He was the controller of Landmark Land Company at the time. Moving here, I can tell you, I uh, will joke with Carl Cardinale every now and then, and I, and I go, you know, Carl, Believe it or not, I used to have some rough edges. (laughs) He'll start laughing because that's probably how I started my job here. Carl is, in my opinion, probably the smartest man I've ever known. And I've learned over the years a lot of skill set, a lot of dealing with people, a lot of how to motivate people from Carl. And then from folks like, you know, Mr. Hubbard, Ed Berger, You're learning another skill set of the decision process, molding success. So, yeah, there's been numerous, numerous people.
0: And these lessons you've learned, I know from a conversation I had with you recently, and I'd like you to share it today, is that you're passing along some of those values and some of those um, lessons that you've learned there are consequences for your actions. You need to learn that when you do something, there's a lesson to be learned from that. Could you share with the people that are listening today an episode with your son, how that came about and what happened?
1: <laughs> well, I guess this comes from my father. My son, I have twins, uh, Christy, my daughter, and Cameron. Christy was zero parenting, she's one of those overachievers. She just succeeded in everything she did. Cameron, on the other hand, was he took a lot more parenting. Well, what had happened was, uh, actually, his mother called me at work, says, we just got our cell phone bill. There's $400 of text messaging on here on Cameron's account. I go, okay, we'll have a conversation. So I come home that evening, I look at the bill myself and I go, you know, these calls are being, or these text messages are happening during school time when he's in class. So Cameron gets home from practice from either baseball or football. I can't remember what time of year. And I go, son, we have to talk. Yeah, dad. He goes, we just got your cell phone bill today. You've got $400 of text messaging on here. Oh, that can't be right, Dad. Can't be right. Can't be right. I mean, that's just immediate denial from Cameron. I go, Cameron, it's all on there. I said, what's worse is you're texting during class time. Oh, no, that's not right, Dad. I, I, I don't believe that. Not for a second. I don't believe that. Dad went, Cameron, I'm not that dumb. I looked at the dates and times I know when you're in class. Oh, okay. He says, well, let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to learn what it takes to earn $400. So I took Cameron and introduced him to Cheeto Velasquez, or at the time was Mountain's golf course superintendent. I said, Chito, this is Cameron. He's got to earn $400. He's your employee until I feel he's earned $400. He will not be paid. I want you to work him every Sunday morning with the crew who comes to work at 5 a.m., I want him to be given the roughest duties you can think of. If you want the yard at the maintenance building swept, give him a toothbrush. Um, I want him to learn how hard it is to earn $400. I said, secondly, I do not want his foreman nor any other employees speaking to him in English because he's not doing very well in his Spanish class at school. So they are to speak to him solely in Spanish. she goes, okay, I got it. I got it. I'll work him. Be here at five o'clock on Sunday. So in the meantime, I went to HR and they produced a memo check, a dummy check of what a day's wages would be. And I put it on the refrigerator. I said, Karen, here it is. You work a day, this is what you get. And he looked at these taxes. Dad, what's that? What is this? They're, I said, so those are taxes, withholdings. He goes, well, that's total BS, dad. No, it's total BS. Well, it might be, but that's the way of the world. That's the real world, son. So see that number right there? How many How many days will it take you to earn 400 bucks? Probably about 10. I went, great, 10 Sundays are working. And so he went up to maintenance and they put him to work, weeding, sweeping, uh, just manual labor type stuff in the freezing cold on a Sunday morning, and, you know, I can uh, remember coming home one day on a Sunday, and he's watching soccer on TV. And I go, son, you're watching soccer. He goes, well, yeah, all the guys in my crew, that's all I talk about is soccer. I said, I, I got to watch this stuff so I can, you know, have some kind of conversation with these guys. I know something about soccer. And uh, so it, it had that effect on him. And finally, he had earned, in my opinion, $400. He wasn't paid anything from Bighorn, but in my opinion, he had earned it. And so that's how I parent. And I've told that story to many parents before, and they thought it was the greatest story imaginable that you did that to him. I said, well, it's time. It was time. He's, you know, 14 years old maybe or something like that. He's, He's got to learn this stuff. So, yeah.
0: What qualities do you look for in people that work with you? Well,
1: let's see. First of all, um, I don't do so much hiring anymore. We have a lot of long-term staff here, but... Uh, career-wise when I'd hire somebody. I always wanted to look at somebody when I'm hiring them and determine in my brain, can they do my job? Do they want my job? That's the kind of person I want to hire. Because I may not always be here. And the company needs to keep going. To this day, I interview every candidate for a position in privacy because that's one of my things that I run. Um, I'm very proud of that group. Um, I work all the time trying to figure out how we can do things better in that group. And so every candidate that comes through, I personally sit down with, and I put them through my drill. You came to my office the other day, you saw my baseball bat covered in barbed wire. They see that. There's a message. It it kind of sets the tone for the meeting. It's hiring the right people. In doing that, it's, it's work ethic. I can teach anybody if they want to learn. They got to have the commitment. That's harder to find these days. There's no such thing as a free lunch.
0: One other question before we get to some other issues. How would you define leadership?
1: The number one thing I look for in a leader is charisma. I want to be that person. Okay? It's odd, but you just get into a trance. Okay, I'm, I'm following this guy, and I want to do what he does. So emulation, charisma, a leader, that to me is the strongest thing. The rest, who's around them, do they have the same perspective? And
0: it just draws you in. That's what a leader does. Charisma. Sometimes from the outside world, get the image of where the the people on the hill... We live up here and we are blessed and we are blessed. This is a wonderful, wonderful place for sure. But we're more than that and I'm proud of that aspect. And I'd like you to touch on the fact that we are very involved in the community. We are very involved in local charities. We're in our, in our own charities. Could you give us a little overview of how that came about, and, and, and tell, tell the new members especially, because there's a lot of new members over the last numbers of years, couple of years, tell us about our charitable efforts, because that's an important part of our culture and the fabric of this club.
1: Well, our charitable efforts really began with strictly all, all we did was the uh, employee scholarship program. I'll touch about that in a minute because it's it's highly personal to me. And then it grew from there, probably because of our members recognizing the real lives that it affected from their own experiences from elsewhere in the country, wherever they come from, saying, Hey, how about this Bighorn Cares program really branching out to other nonprofits in the valley? And about the same time you know, you had, bam, Selby Dunham. You want to talk about a program that affected real lives. That's the number one. Directly real lives. Very, very, very proud of that group of people. And CARES is is much the same way. The other nonprofits in the Valley, I mean, they're chasing pretty much the same dollar as the other nonprofit. So it's it's rough. It's not easy. So when a, when a big horn CARES comes along and says, look, we're going to raise money through donations from our membership and others. And we're going to help you out. There's some criteria that you have to meet. You know, we just don't just, it's not just anybody. We, we have to, we, we and, and Kelly Levy spends an enormous amount of time going to every one of these nonprofits and going through their programs. What is it? They have to define a program for us. And that's what we fund. Not just any, it's not just a general contribution to them. So, she has to go there and go through every nonprofit. Okay, what are your plans? What do you need funding for? It has to be something. It can't just be, uh, well, we just need the money, you know, that kind of thing. So, very, very a good program as well. Um, and scholarships, it uh, goes without saying, there's just so many people that, um, would not have the opportunity to go to college if if it wasn't for what I consider a very generous program for scholarships.
0: And many of those people, this is first-time family college participants. Right. Well, I think that it's something that I believe that we should be very proud of. I'm Mm -hmm. glad that you touched on some of those things. The last question I'm gonna have for you, Joe. What advice would you give the 20-year-old Joe Curtis?
1: one year old Joe Curtis. Wow, what was I like at 20? I don't want to be that guy again. <laughs> like I said, believe it or not, I used to have some rough edges. Yeah, there were a lot of rough edges when I was 20. If I had to take my experiences and apply it to that kid, I uh, think I would have continued from a standpoint of education a bit further, such as a master's program. I didn't do that. I wish to have done that. I wished I knew people skills when I was 20. When you're 20 you're all over the place. I just wished I could have been better to people. I like to be around successful people. I would like would like to have had that opportunity at 20, learn by their experiences because really at 20 you're still a you're still a lump of coal. You're not a diamond yet. Being around successful people get you to that diamond. I was playing football and going to school. And when I started my, my career, I was nervous, but I really wished I had better people skills at that time. It, that took some time for me to really learn. And, and I think when I did, then really th- things started to flourish.
0: Joe, again, you stay in the background and I know that talking about yourself would not be your choice necessarily but I really appreciate you coming in today and doing this. I think some of the stories that you've told, but certainly some of the life lessons that you've shared are things that are important for people to know so they get to know you better, but also that they can, in many of these podcasts, pass these along to grandchildren, children, uh, friends, and that's what's happened in these podcasts because your experiences are not much different than what People are going through right now. I'd love for you to, if there's anything else you want to share, anything else that you want to talk about before we conclude this, please do.
1: You know, I really do. Because this is, in my opinion, my time to really explain something that I'll take to my grave from this place. And that is, I'm going back to Bighorn Golf Club Charities. I'm going to go back to the scholarship program. There's a time. Uh, My kids graduated from high school. They're both going on to college, and I've always promised them, look, I'm going to get you through the undergraduate level. I'll cover the bills, and um, after that, it's on you. (laughs) You So unfortunately, though, the minute they're leaving to go to college, I started to go through a uh, divorce, and that kind of hurt the availability of the money that I had had for, for their school. Bitcoin Golf Club Charities, my gosh, that's how we did it. And the generosity of people for that program is huge. It affects real lives and I'm going to take it a step further. My daughter, the overachiever again, she goes to college, San Diego State. She graduates in three years. She decides to go to graduate school. Again, Charities is kicking in money for that. She goes to Long Beach State, gets her master's in about a year. All along, Charities is helping her every semester, but she's the straight-A kid. After she graduates, graduates, she comes back to the Valley here, and she's kind of thinking that she wants to get involved in the nonprofit world. Okay. She says, Dad, I'm, I've got an interview with Martha's uh, Kitchen. I said, well, that's a Dan Dunlap thing. So I got her hooked up with Dan Dunlap. Dan Dunlap interviewed her basically, and recommended her for the job. She got the job. So she was at Martha's Kitchen for, I don't know, a couple of years. And then she got a job uh, in San Diego in the executive department of a huge nonprofit. She's growing like crazy there. So Dan Dunlap gave her the first uh, opportunity. So where she's at right now in San Diego, it's the largest, oldest nonprofit there is in San Diego. And she's in the executive office and just doing great things. So proud of her. My son, my son, uh, took a long, longer road to get his undergraduate degree, but he did from Sacramento state again, the kindness and generosity of Big Horn golf club charities. That's how we got it done. And after he graduated, he came back here, went to work. This is where it gets very personal. My son had a terrible accident. The worst thing a parent could get is the phone call at midnight. Well, I'm not going to get into the details, but I was told he wasn't going to survive. Four hospitals in two months, he did survive. And he came back and he started his job again. And shortly thereafter, a mutual friend said, you know, Cameron, would you ever consider coaching football at Palm Desert High School? My son was a quarterback there. I said, gosh, I'd love to do that. His business where he's working, which just right down the street. So he gets off at three o'clock. He said, you can, can run down there and get changed, be on the practice field by 3.30. No problem. So the new head coach hires him as an assistant coach, assistant varsity football coach. Well, he just became his passion, coaching and working with those kids. Athletic director there was his coach when my son went to Palm Desert High School and says, Cam, I need a baseball coach. Can you do baseball after football? So yeah, I'll do baseball. So he did, he was the he called himself the head baseball coach for the freshman team. Fact matters, the only coach out there for the freshman team. (laughs) At any rate, so he he did that. And then he came to me one day, says, Dad, I'm just loving the coaching thing. I I love working with those kids. And he also was teaching them, don't make the mistakes I made. It cost you dearly said, Dad, I want to go back to school. I want to get my teaching credential. I want to get my master's. I want to get my teaching credential. He says, do you think Bitcoin Golf Club Charities can help me out? I went, I bet they can, son. Let's get an application. See what they can do. So while my son is working full-time and coaching, he now decides to go back to school. All of it, all at the same time. He did go back to school. Bitcoin Golf Club Charities. Couldn't have done it without without charities. He uh, finished his program, uh, I'll say, four or five months ago, straight A's. And he was in some, uh, I forget the academic achievement that he was awarded. He went in student teaching. Mr. Lockman, as we sit here and talk, that kid was not supposed to make it. Is teaching ninth grade English at Palm Desert High School. At the end of the day, he changes his clothes, goes out. He's now the JV baseball head coach. He coaches his team. And each fall, he goes back into football, and he coaches, I forget which position in football, for the varsity squad. Uh, He's loving life. That program, Big Horn Golf Club Charities, affects real people. That's a success story. I'm sorry for being emotional, but there was a time that was going to go the other way. So all those involved, all the great people of Big Horn Golf Club Charities, I thank you.
0: Well, Joe, there's not much that I can add to that. But I appreciate you sharing such a personal story. And I understand why it's emotional to you, but it also sends a great message. And again, thanks for your honesty, your vulnerability, um, the job you do here, but most importantly for sharing that story. Thank you. My pleasure. Joe, thank you for sharing your story. This is so important because we firmly believe that the people who work here are an integral part of our culture and success. We will continue to provide these stories to you as an important part of the fabric of our community. And thanks again to Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers and Back Nine Greens for their ongoing support of the Bighorn podcast which allows us to bring to you these interesting people and their extraordinary stories. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you another great story soon.